This episode of Gilded Age is brought to you by Raytheon. They say killing and maiming countless innocent people in faraway places is a man's game. They say women just can't cut it. At Raytheon, we beg to differ. We believe in the power of every woman to make cutting-edge breakthroughs in the field of mass death. That's why we're starting the Girl Scouts for Bombs program. Raytheon is empowering women every day, and nothing is more powerful than a Raytheon Paveway laser-guided bomb to destroy entire Yemeni wedding parties, including innocent children. And we are excited to announce that Raytheon will be launching a line of exclusive, pink, laser-guided munitions embossed with the phrase, Namaste, to show our support for women. Raytheon, exploding the gender barrier. So, both of you may have heard, we're kind of fucked right now. No, 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 dude. Listen, we've been through a lot worse. <laughs> I mean, like, remember when McDonald's ran out of its special Szechuan sauce and the world came to a halt? We got this. I, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that. But, you know, look, man, Shame I don't know. You. you turn on the news today, it, it's like there are protests and riots going on around the country uh, demanding justice for yet another unarmed black man who was murdered by police on camera in front of a crowd of people. Uh, businesses have been shut down for months, although we're slowly reopening in the middle of a pandemic, despite having no treatment or no vaccine and no cure for, for the virus. Um, and to, uh, yeah, you know, it's still still going on. A uh, hundred thousand people dead so far. Um, no end in sight. And uh, a recent study found that within six months, half of small businesses could close and 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment since March. So, yeah, things are pretty bad. Things are uh, things are pretty, pretty bad. And even before the pandemic hit in 2018, 87 million Americans were uninsured or underinsured and 40 percent of the country struggled to afford basic needs. Right. And meanwhile, um, we have the mounting threat of climate change and um we have the dawn. <laughs> we have the dawn of something scientists are calling the Anthropocene. Um, so this is a new geologic period where the dominant force acting on the planet is human activity. Um, and <laughs> oh, good. One, one of the defining features of this is um, something called the sixth great extinction. So that's kind of ominous. Um, so is that is that sounding. what they're saying? Like that that we will we will be the sixth great extinction? The there there are. So there have been five up to this point. The right. last one ended with the um, meteorite that took out the dinosaurs, mm-hmm. um, and now we're in the six, and it's it's human based. So we are we are the giant meteor destroying the earth. Right. Yeah, there, it's something like I mean, it's it's species of animals all across the planet just rapidly dying out at a. At so a un- I think what de- uh, defines a great extinction is seventy five percent of life on Earth being eradicated. Um, <laughs> It sounds so promising. We're in the midst of that right now. So you would think that with all of this shit going on, the the Democratic House, the Democratic Party controlled House would be, you know, frantically passing legislation, just hand over fist, putting out like sweeping reforms, right? Like, like, oh, we're going to we're really going to tackle climate change. Oh, we're really going to we're going to deal with the immediate threat of the of the coronavirus. We're going to guarantee people monthly assistance. We're going to make sure that we uh, we are fully funding our, our, our hospitals. 
We're going to implement a national healthcare system so nobody has to pay for care. Just basic stuff like that. You would think they would be doing that, uh, but they're not. Yeah, and but, well, I don't know. Listen, Walker. First of all, you know Nancy Pelosi uh, read read from the Bible on camera. Second of all, she's uh, almost done with her latest pint of Rocky Road ice cream. So I mean, slaying is happening. It's just not happening in the U.S. House. What's really troubling about it is that it's not. It's not unexpected, right? Like, this isn't surprising. We've seen this kind of inaction before, or reluctance to act before. Like, all through this pandemic, we've seen it, but also we saw it back in 2008 during the subprime mortgage crisis, uh, or, or, or 2009, when uh, Barack Obama was in, was, was in office. I mean, we saw, we saw the same reluctance to help people out. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, you know what boils my ass about this whole thing? I'll, I'll tell you what boils my ass. I love that expression. <laughs> I've definitely never heard it. Is, will... is that a Walker Bragman original or what? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, but I, I'll tell you what boils my ass. It's that oftentimes we hear this paralysis in D.C. or this this unwillingness to help people framed as hyper-partisanship, as per- paralysis, right? Like it's, oh my God, Congress can't act. They can't act. And that's that's what's holding gumming up the works. But that's not true. We know that's not true because Congress just got done bailing out companies again, big companies again, they which is again. sort of par. For, they did it again, par for the course. They always do this. They whenever whenever the people need help, there's never enough money, and they can't act. And there's partisanship, and there's ideologies involved. But when it comes to what what global capital needs, what what big business needs, when Boeing needs a bailout, we've deep deep pockets and never ask any questions we've we've the people have spent a lot of money um confusing the destruction of equity with the destruction of jobs and the real economy so right that's where we are now. right <laughs> but that's, so, that's for a different episode well right so what's so what is the problem uh that is the question that we are going to try to answer today on this second episode of gilded age the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked as always, I'm Walker Bragman. I'm Alex Koch. I'm Mark Colangelo. And today we're going to discuss how a cultural shift that occurred in the latter half of the 20th century and a 1976 Supreme Court decision sent us down the road to hell. So before we launch into campaign finance history, uh, we want to say loud and clear that Black Lives Matter, we need to defund the police, and we need to completely dismantle our law enforcement system and build it back up from the ground. Um, we need to totally rethink um, law enforcement. And it's uh, it's a total tragedy what's been happening in this country for our entire history, uh, including uh, the last uh, six years uh, under the sort of in the Black Lives Matter era. Um, you know, because we have these smartphones and things, we're seeing this stuff happen. That's that's been happening for forever, um, and it's uh, it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, so um, you know, we're not going to talk about Black Lives Matter and the murder of uh, George Floyd 
in this episode, but we want to make it very clear that uh, we support the protesters. Uh, we support uh, donating money to black-led organizations that are doing important justice work, uh, giving money to bail funds so the protesters um, can get out of jail as quickly as possible. Um, so Black Lives Matter, um, and this is a hell of a, a, a time. You know, this is a great movement that is that feels different than past uh, Black Lives Matter uh, moments. I mean, I think I think um, the possibility of of some real change seems a little more within reach than I think in past years to me. Absolutely. I mean, this is it's it's very impressive what these activists are doing. Um, I mean, yesterday uh, I was at I was at a march, and um, I mean these kids these kids put their their bodies on the line. Um, people bring out their, their families and they, they, they really do put in, put in the work and it's, it's very impressive and, and it does feel different. Yeah, it does see, feel like seeing the unity that's, that's come up in response to what is something that was just utterly horrifying, um, at least is a, a bit of an encouraging overlining and hopefully we can finally get some, some real change pushed through. Absolutely. And so um, this actually brings us to our next segment, which is uh, this week is related. It's, it's called Tweet of the Week. Uh, every week, you know, we want to highlight really the best of online, the smartest thought leaders, the wokest libs, the biggest galaxy brains of the digital era. Um, so this week, this actually, is the first time we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the first tweet of the week, but it's going to be the first of many. Um, there's never a shortage of, of Galaxy takes online. So um, it's actually two different tweet threads. Um, so I'm going to sh- read the first one. This was uh, by Vox, um, I believe, senior correspondent, Vox.com, German Lopez. Oh, um, Vox. German Lopez distinguished himself uh, a couple years ago. Um, by tweeting uh, against his own colleagues uh, union. He had a long thread about how his job was so great. Why would they ever need any kind of basic protections as workers? Um, and then he ended up changing his mind because um, he realized that the union actually it does make things better and not just for him, but for everyone. So um, German Lopez, <laughs> I feel like he's been kind of quiet on Twitter um, since then. I mean, I don't follow him. So maybe, maybe he's not Maybe he does tweet more than I think, but um, he, he's come back uh, into the spotlight. On June 4th, he had a tweet. It was a reply to a, an initial tweet that he talks about. He's criticizing left-leaning and pro-protest articles and writers for uh, apparently or allegedly um, kind of uh, letting go of their standards of quality and stuff like that. But the reply says this, I've read multiple defund the police or abolish the police takes that don't even acknowledge that murders happen and what we should do about them without police. There are tons of articles uh, waving away concerns about riots with very weak whataboutism. It's frankly pathetic. So, you know, that that's a take. Um, note that he's criticizing both defunding police and abolishing the police. Um, and he, he got he got a little flogging for that. But there's another one that got even more attention. That's with uh, from his colleague, uh, another senior correspondent at Fox, Zach Beauchamp. Um, he says, I'm sorry, but abolish the police seems like a poorly thought out idea that's gotten popular with shocking speed. And so this one was uh, this one was worse because especially because of the shocking speed uh, element, as if as if you know Bochamp is, is is saying that uh, just now people are are having this crazy idea of of abolishing the cops and and uh, putting in place a whole new system uh, when this has been going on for literally centuries. Um, so Bochamp uh, kind of proceeds to link to a couple articles. Um, 
add a little, you know, some of his, his arguments. And then the fourth tweet of the thread, uh, it gets even better guys. Wait, wait for this one. It says, I really appreciate the good faith replies here, making the case for police abolition. Lots of good arguments, but the condescending assumption that I had <laughs> never heard of the idea before today, nor read about it before, because I think it's poorly thought out is annoying. Um, so, so he's, he's kind of like, uh, digging his heels Wait, in and saying, well, so he's Wait, lots of good arguments and, and yet I think it's poorly thought I'm confused. Well, so what, what he was saying is like, he's saying, because I tweeted that abolish the police is, is a poorly thought out policy idea. Um, people are, are, are being condescending to me, but what he actually said in the tweet, in addition to that was it's gotten popular with shocking speed. So that's what people are responding to that. He's saying like, wow, it's become popular all of a sudden. It's like, no dude, this has been around for a long time in activist circles and anarchist circles, etc. Um, you know, literally like for over a century, this is, there's been talk of this. Um, and so, uh, that's what people are. So he's kind of flipping the criticism and saying that no, is the other part of my tweet that people are getting condescending about. But then <laughs> like 25 minutes later, he tweets, he goes, Talk to a number of people I respect about the framing of the original tweet, and I do feel like it was a mistake. It was far too dismissive, and then I, ironically, complained about condescending replies. We all send bad tweets sometimes. This was one of them. So, you know, credit to the guy for acknowledging um, a, a pretty crappy tweet, and then his his uh, pretty crappy um ornery response to criticism of that tweet. But, um, you know, this is just a cross-section of, of your, your kind of technocratic... Um, Karen-esque uh, Vox senior correspondent crew. Uh, so I wanted to share that with everyone. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. Thank Vox you is that. far. I mean, they're 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 far <laughs> too welcome. smart for 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 me. I mean, Vox is far too smart for me. I, you know, I'm just uh, here. I am just uh, your typical, you know, college-educated law school grad millennial. Well, I, I think one of the, one of the problems. What with, do I? What do I? Well, you know, one of the problems with, with this kind of technocratic, I guess, kind of stance towards policy is that there's no imagination, right? Like it ha you have to have a fully thought out plan that like doesn't disrupt any uh, sort of ongoing systems of government or economics um, in order for it to be like, okay, in order for them to sort of respect it. And so like, because people are just like, yo, like from all, all like all levels of it, like some people are like, yo, just abolish the police because they suck. And some people are like, okay, here's like my 200 page anarchist screed about why we should abolish the police and how we can do that and replace it with something better. So that, that's just kind of like the Vox. I mean, like, look, this doesn't even include Matthew Iglesias, who I'm sure will, will be a future tweet of the week. Um, although he, did, oh. he has blocked me, so I have to, I have to go into incognito He's mode. He's blocked to me too. Right. You're safe for now, Maddie, but we're coming for exactly. you. Exactly. Um. We've got to monitor. But, but let, me, let me finish this up by saying this one incredible detail, uh, which is perfect. Just before we, we started recording this podcast, we're recording on Sunday the 7th, um, I read a story in The Appeal. It says, Minneapolis City Council has announced that they will disband the city's police department and replace it with community public safety programs. Can you fucking imagine that? Like, they just, they just did Dude, it. Dude, don't they even read Vox? Don't they even <laughs> read Vox? Yeah, I mean, those wrongheaded, uh, the wrongheaded uh, veto-proof majority of the M Minneapolis City Council uh, just did something really silly. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how they treat it over there at Fox, if, if, they, uh, if they acknowledge it or not. But um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to some, some more Karen takes. Thank you for the tweet of the week, Alex. We're going to get back to our, 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 our main segment today, which is about the uh, the cultural shift in the twenty latter half of the twentieth century and 
1976 Supreme Court decision that fucked us all. Um, so it's so the first thing that we have to talk about is the cultural shift. It's hard to say exactly when Americans lost faith in government, but lose it they did, and that's been extremely important. Um, you might start with the Red Scare. So after World War II, the two dominant global superpowers are the United States and the Soviet Union. And here in the United States, that scared the shit out of us. Uh, and, and, and the atmosphere that this created was one of, of paranoia and suspicion and fear. And there was one man who recognized that this was his moment. That man, of course, was an ambitious freshman, freshman senator from Wisconsin named Joseph McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy becomes the voice of this this new era. Uh, he gives a speech in 1950, and he announces that he has a list of 205 communist sympathizers working in the State Department. Now, you, this was an innocent time, a more more innocent time in America. Uh, we just come out of the bloodiest war in in human history, and um, you know people trusted their government. People liked. People, people liked their government, and uh, here's a guy coming out saying he's got he's found infiltration by the commies. I mean, th- this 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 set off a, a bit of a this caused a bit of a stir. So was he was he the original deep state conspiracy theorist? Like like do do all the Trumpian people like owe him a lot for originating that concept? So no, he he was like Malcolm Nance, Louise mentioned uh, Eric Garland, all wrapped into one. Uh, crazy pants uh, dude with a shitload of power. Mm-hmm. Like, so the GOP takes control of the Senate and McCarthy becomes the Senate committee, uh, the chairman of the Senate committee on government operations, which allows him to carry out his investigations into alleged communists in the government. And over the next few years, surprise, surprise, hundreds of Americans are accused people in government, people in labor unions and people in entertainment blacklists are formed and careers are ruined. Uh, and, and in, in this moment of panic, uh, government cracks down on speech and thought with new legislation. Like the McCarran, inter- uh, the McCarran Internal Security Act requires communist groups to register with the Attorney General. The Immigration and Nationality Act of 1952 allows for the deportation of naturalized citizens who engage in subversive activity. And the Communist Control Act of 1954 tries to outlaw the Communist Party. Think about that in today's terms. Imagine if the government passed a law that required certain ideological groups to register with the attorney general simply in, to exist. I mean, that is crazy. Yeah, but honestly, we're not that far away from this. Like, if, like yeah, the way that, that Bill Barr and Donald crazy. Trump are, are headed, like, it seems like they're almost trying to get to that point. It's, it seems less crazy than it should. Right. It would have seemed a lot crazier a few I mean, years that's, ago. But yes, it is nuts. It, it would have. But, it, but also, <laughs> I mean, and also, I have to say, in, in wake of, of Russiagate, there's been a, a call on the left to crack down on on speech on social media which i find personally i find very troubling but this was worse than any of it i mean this was this was a period where think about it there was no social media at least today we can call this shit out and and do it freely and know that we are connected but back in the day people lived in their communities they didn't have access to the global or community or even the nationwide community uh so they it was very. It, it became an era of whispered dissent and hush hush like feelings, and, and um, you know, eventually McCarthy is exposed. There's that great TV moment where uh, 
where um, Joe Walsh is the attorney for the army in the uh, army McCarthy hearings is he asks McCarthy, have you no decency? Cause right. McCarthy had made an allegation against somebody in his law firm. Um, and, and that moment really exposed McCarthy, but, but he had been also under attack by like Murrow and, and, um, uh, he he'd come under attack before then. By the way, the have, hysteria, um, so the hyster- have, have either of you guys seen "Where's My Roy Cohn"? No, it's a it's a great documentary about Roy Cohn, who I think was very young when he became uh, McCarthy's top counsel um, during that the McCarthy era on that committee. Um, he he, I think he was like early twenties, and he was like this. He became this big shot. Uh, attorney, you know, and, and then he went on to, to have his own practice and he would basically like, he worked for the mob and stuff. Um, really fascinating. He's a, Whoa. he's a totally brilliant guy. Um, and he's just like, he's this detestable, brilliant person. And it's a really good doc. Uh, I saw it, <laughs> I saw it in the last couple of months. It was, it was awesome. Um, so anyway, highly recommend that, but, um, all right, we'll have to check it out. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really cool. Um, so yeah, McCarthy McCarthy gets exposed and the hysteria fades, but the damage is is done. I mean, people have lost faith have have lost faith in their government. It's it, their government terror. I mean, it was terrorizing people. Like you couldn't you you couldn't express yourself. It was very repressed. But then came the 60s. So things have drastically changed. Um, if the previous decade was marked by repression and whispered dissent, uh, things have completely boiled over. Um, radicalism is in, there's love, there's drugs, there's rock music, and America <laughs> has reached what many feel is, is a tipping point. Um, and people do not see the government in control any longer. You've got the civil rights movement with people demanding racial equality and the ensuing violent response from the Southern whites. You've got the Vietnam War, the draft, the high-profile pro- atrocities, and the student-led opposition. And you've got a number of assassinations and murders. You got JFK in 1963. You got Malcolm X in 65. You got MLK in 68. Fred Hampton in 69. And then the Kent State Massacre uh, in 1970, where the National Guard troops fired on student demonstrators with live rounds. Man, yeah, I've not, been thinking about that a lot lately. I've been thinking about that a lot, considering there's the military in DC. Yep. yep. I mean, that's that's that was running through my mind yesterday. I saw mm-hmm. the the kids like taunting uh taunting the cops you see the cops with the batons out there some of them had them wrapped around their their wrists uh long before the curfew like long before the curfew started so like but yeah so so yeah you did have a lot of these 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 demonstrations mark thank you it was uh yeah it's it's like it's even looking back on that era um in the context of what's going going on now it's it's seemed even crazier so it's tough to, with how crazy things feel now, I mean, it's tough to imagine what it was like living through that. I mean, it feels like everything is coming apart at the seams. So the 70s uh, are pretty tumultuous as well. There's stagflation uh, that was setting in. Um, there's uh, Richard Nixon, the president, um, you know, had run as a law and order candidate who would restore order to America. Uh, but by August uh, 1974, he was resigning in disgrace uh, for having broken laws. 
1972, uh, five men were arrested at the Democratic National Committee's headquarters in the Watergate complex. Um, they were attempting to steal and photograph important documents from the DNC um, in preparation for uh, the, the uh, Nixon's re-election campaign. Um, so over the next two years, a national scandal unfolded. Uh, large payments to the burglars uh, were linked to the Nixon campaign. There was audio tapes that emerged um, that were key in, in the impeachment uh, hearings. Uh, Nixon and company tried to cover up the crimes, which made things much worse for them. Um, so in August 1974, uh, Nixon resigns. Um, and but he was <laughs> never impeached. He, he resigns before impeachment. Okay. Well, the, yes. I'm sorry. the uh, The impeachment uh, proceedings had begun, but it wasn't actually the impeachment itself. Effect, um, effectively so, impeached. Yeah. So, but 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 one of my um, one of my favorite little details about this is just one month after Nixon resigned, so September '74, the next president, Gerald Ford, pardons Nixon. So it's literally the biggest presidential scandal in U.S. history. And then just like a month later, Ford's like, "Ah, hey, you're good. Go ahead and have. Go ahead and lead your life. You're cool." Um, but that's, yeah, that's no a, accountability. I mean, but that's what happens with, you know, whether or not the, the president is impeached, that's what happens with every successive administration. I mean, Obama could have prosecuted George Bush and Dick Cheney and everyone else for war crimes, but he didn't. And, you know, maybe there was a reason because a few years later he's droning, he's drone bombing uh, all over the Middle East and committing war crimes himself. Um, so wait, does that mean that Donald Trump could have prosecuted Barack Obama for war crimes if he'd wanted to? I think he threatened uh, to. Maybe. Uh, not, I, I, not I don't, war crimes, but for other things. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not really sure, but th that's the pro See, this is more getting into what's next. Like, if Biden wins, he's not going to prosecute Trump. He won't. He'll let the states do it, which they probably will. Like, New York will do it. But no, no, uh, Biden won't. It's, it's, a, it's a tradition that you just don't, even if your predecessor is, is literally a fascist, you know, wannabe dictator, like, it's not going to happen. It's, that's too bad. Um, but, you know, going back to, to what was happening, so... Um, you know, uh, the nation was pretty shocked after after Nixon's resignation, and you know, most importantly, the public trust in government had dropped about seventeen points that year. Um, and to this day, it is yet one to rebound. Year? Uh, in yeah, one nineteen seventy four, seventeen points. Right, that and it still insane. hasn't. But think about that. Since then, uh, Americans' trust in their government has not risen above pre-Nixon levels. So that's kind of that was kind of like the point. I think a kind of a breaking point where people just said, "All right, like the government's not really trustworthy anymore," and, and I'm not sure if that's ever going to be fixed. Right. So it makes it much more difficult to pass legislative to to uh, embrace government when when people don't trust it. Right. To get to, to for people to to trust the government to handle something like healthcare. It, it's it's a bit of a hurdle when people don't have any faith that their government can do it. Well, and it doesn't um, help that like Congress continues to be completely unresponsive to the people that they're supposed to well, be right. representing. And, but we'll get to that. And, <laughs> so so this this distrust this uh, this distrust of government in general um, was was happening um, in the economic sphere as well. So, so I want to take a minute to talk about something that was happening in academia around the same time. Um, there was this emergence of a new economic theory that prescribed limited government. Um, so from the Great Depression on through the whole post-war expansion period, um, the dominant economic theory shaping everything was that of uh, a Mr. John Menard Keynes. Um, 
You've probably heard that name before. Um, Once or twice. <laughs> Keynes, Keynes prescribed a, a managed market economy. So that's one where the government played an active role to mitigate recessions and depressions. Um, you know, and the tools that they would use to do this were, you know, adjusting tax rates, interest rates, and more importantly, the uh, through public spending. Right. So this emerged. This emerged right after the Great Depression. This emerged the, or, d- during the Great Depression. Um, yeah. His. Uh, yep. Yeah, his magnum opus um, came out, I think, in 1936, um, which which laid out this whole theory. Um, but it so FDR um, adopted this, right? And uh, this was what underlied FDR's public works programs and the New Deal. The whole, the whole New Deal, this this idea that the government could step in and could help um, mitigate the negative effects in the economy, right? Um, so this is a revolutionary shift in thinking. It seems kind of obvious to us now, but before that, the cl- classical economic theory had said, you know, government bad in in um, the economy, and they just had this laissez-faire approach. So th- so this worked. Um, fantastically for a while. Um, I mean, the, the post-war expansion was, we look back on that as the, the golden age uh, economically in America with this egalitarian growth. Um, but uh, in the early 70s, in the late 60s and early 70s, really, this started to grind to a halt and something called stagflation set in. And so stagflation is when unemployment and inflation are rising at the same time. Um, and this contradicted some of the basic assumptions and the models that Keynesianism hinged on. So this this just should not happen uh, in a Keynesian world, um, because now we're in a situation where more money, more public spending being put into the economy is not sparking economic growth, uh, which it had during the Depression and through the entire post-war period. It was just driving up inflation and it was making things worse. So this was a real, real dilemma um, for Keynesian economics and and there were a lot of people thinking very hard um, about what what that meant and what the next shift would be. Right. So behind stagflation were actually a number of causes. Um, there was the Vietnam War spending, uh, and there was the, the the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, and then the ensuing shock which led to the 1973 oil embargo. So for those who don't know, the Bretton Woods system was the new economic world order established after World War II. Among other things, it ties global currencies to the U.S. dollar, which in turn is pegged to the price of gold, the gold standard. So Nixon ends ends the Bretton Woods system uh, over concerns of uh, overvaluation of the U.S. dollar because there were too many dollars and there was not enough gold to back it up. And, and when he does this, it causes a global economic shock. And some of the most affected nations are oil producers who suffer real loss of income. Uh, the dollar's worth just wasn't what it used to be. And so uh, this, along with U.S. support uh, during the Yom Kippur Ramadan War in, 19, in October 1973, leads members of uh, OPEC to restrict global the global oil supply, driving up prices and causing a crisis. So uh, the rising price of oil dro- drove prices of everything else up, um, while also constricting economic activity. Hence, stagflation. Um, right. And incidentally, when OPEC opens up uh, oil reserves in, in Saudi Arabia, the the uh, economy picks up again. But that wouldn't happen until until. Uh, Reagan. So the response to this came out of uh, the University of Chicago. 
And that was Tennessee Griffin School, baby. That was oh yeah, <laughs> free market thinking. So what's best for capital is best for everybody. Um, and now this would have been mocked uh, just a few years earlier in the New Deal era, um, but suddenly it was mainstream uh, across many disciplines. Chicago and Chicago school academics like Milton Friedman uh, ended up working for Nixon, who was uh, in the process of reshaping the Supreme Court at the time. And then after Nixon, uh, Friedman went on to work for Reagan, who really cemented the the free market shift. Um, and he did this by wrapping it up in the language of uh, Southern opposition to the civil rights movement. Um, and in doing so, he sweeps two election cycles. Um, now this, seeing this, the Democrats um, were prompted to adapt uh, and become more market friendly themselves. So that thinking seemed to have won the day and it created a shift that we're, that we're still dealing with. Right. You, Reagan, Reagan comes in and he says, the, the nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And that is in stark contrast to the, uh, to the thinking that dominated the New Deal era. I mean, this is, this is the end of... And Bill Clinton comes in and says, this is the end of the era. The era of big government is over. I mean, th- what a radical shift for the Democratic Party. Then again, Reagan did just win two major elections. I think, I think the 1984 map, he lost, uh, he lost only one state. Um, it's a major, it's a major, major trouncing for Democrats. And, and yeah, so, so while all of this is going on, let's, let's just take a step back. While all of this shit is going on and Americans are losing faith in government, Congress sets out to restore faith in the system by changing the way that political campaigns are financed. Uh, concern over wealthy people exerting undue influence in government wasn't anything new. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt even proposed a solution, uh, public election financing, in his 1907 State of the Union, (laughs) talking about how no law prevented, quote, an unscrupulous man of unlimited means from buying his own way into office, end quote. God, if he'd seen Michael Bloomberg. Wow. Uh, But Congress, yeah, think about that for a minute. But Congress didn't do anything about this until really 1972. They passed their first real reform. It's called the Federal Election Campaign Act, or FICA. Um, and that imposes uh, disclosure requirements on campaign contributions. And they also pass the Revenue Act, which creates a system of public financing for presidential elections. So after Watergate, Congress went back and they made several amendments to uh, FICA. So that included, like, what was it? Limits on individual impact contributions to federal candidates, uh, limits on candidate self-financing, um, limits on overall campaign expenditures, um, and limits on independent expenditures, which means uh, spending that's not coordinated with a campaign or candidate. Uh, so almost immediately, uh, a legal challenge arose, um, and it came from a pretty unusual coalition. Uh, it was New York State Senator James L. Buckley of the Conservative Party, uh, former Democratic presidential candidate Eugene McCarthy, uh, the American Conservative Union, uh, which is still pretty active today in, in Republican politics, uh, the New York Civil Woo! Liberties Union, um, and the Peace and Economic Freedom Party, and the Libertarian Party. So um, the case made it all the way up to the Supreme Court, and that case is called Buckley v. Vallejo. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting. The ACLU got involved in that case, right? That's, that's mm-hmm. a crazy... 
Like that's something that a lot of people like we we donate to the ACLU today because they they do a bunch of like they fight for a lot of good causes. But then like they have this huge blind spot when it comes to money and politics. I mean, they were involved not only in Buckley, but they were involved in Citizens United as well. Are you serious? Um, yeah, people don't people don't oh, realize this. The ACLU is like very pro money and politics. Well, they're um, not. They're just they're they're kind of free speech absolutists, um, I guess. But I think they're start, they started to change that. Like they only in the last couple of years they decided to stop defending like white nationalist people who want to protest. Like they decided that it's like not. It's just morally, like the the the, the sort of moral rot of doing that is it kind of supersedes like the sort of principle of, of free freedom of speech. Um, which again, we can go on. We can go into, and I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, that. that's a whole other, that's a whole other topic. Um, but yeah, and they, an interesting yeah, one. They've I mean, taken, definitely, yeah. But they, they have taken some, some odd positions. Yeah. So anyway, Buckley comes down in 1976, and incidentally, uh, that's the same year that Friedman wins the Nobel Prize for his macroeconomic theory. Uh, it's a per curiam opinion, which means that there isn't unanimous consent. Uh, or unanimous you know, agreement between the judges, but the court ultimately finds in favor of the plaintiffs and strikes down the limits on independent expenditures. Um, and it does this based on an interpretation of marketplace theory. Now, we haven't talked about this, but we're going to right now, so strap in. It's a lot of fun. It's it's not, but it is kind of. So marketplace theory is the theory of the First Amendment that says the First Amendment is there to ensure uh, just what it sounds like, a marketplace of ideas. Sort oh, of like hell a free yeah. I love that oh, marketplace yeah, of ideas, man. You can find it on the pages of The Atlantic today. You can find it in the academic <laughs> programs that are funded by Charles G. Koch. The marketplace of ideas, everyone. We are going to commodify Ew. ideas. Well, it works real well. So, so anyway, the uh, the theory is that the best ideas will will rise to the top, right? They'll gain the most traction. So that's that's what you want. You want the the as as free an exchange of ideas as possible. Uh, so this first this theory was first articulated in 1919 um, in a dissent by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in Abrams versus United States. And for the first half of the 20th century, it doesn't dominate jurisprudence. Like you have to remember, we talked a little bit earlier about the Red Scare, and in the Red Scare, the government was encroaching on free speech uh, all the time, and it was totally fine. The court, the court did not uh, really step in to was not a pillar of of First Amendment, you know, protection. Um, but in the late sixties, you've got all these protests and the open expression of political thought, and the court, uh, the the court's old framework. Um, was sort of not viable. I mean, you've got student protests in, in schools. You've got 250,000 people march on Washington. Like the dissent was, was loud. It was proud and it was, you know, it was out there. You, you had the, the civil rights movement, the Native American rights movement, um, the student anti-war movements. Anyway, you, you get the idea. So marketplace theory sort of solidifies itself um, in, in the late 60s. Uh, and by, and by the, by, by 1976, when Buckley comes down, Nixon has reshaped the court with, uh, with his own justices. Now you have to remember that Nixon was familiar with the Chicago school of economics. He was familiar with the thought he employed Freeman. So Friedman, uh, so you have, um, you have a reshaping of the court and Buckley is arguably a, an extreme laissez-faire interpretation of marketplace theory of the first amendment. Um, and so, so uh, the court couches its ruling in the idea 
that public debate, uh, the debate on public issues should be, quote, uninhibited, robust, and wide open because, quote, the unfettered exchange of ideas ensures, quote, the political and social changes desired by the people. Huh. 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 Uh, and then it applied it to money. <laughs> so, so yeah, so the court does that. It does not uphold, uh, it does uphold contribution limits uh, for direct contributions, but again, the the independent uh, expenditures, no limits on those. For, um, for individuals. Because it says, right. It, right, so it says, it says that those don't provide, those don't create corruption or the appearance of it. Like it, the court acknowledges that there, the government has an interest in preventing corruption or the appearance of it. And that's why direct contributions, you can limit those because it wouldn't look good to have a bunch of wealthy people giving money directly to candidates. That looks like bribery. But if they do it independently, not coordinating with those candidates, that can't possibly be corruption. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's it. I mean, there's, there's no corruption there, right? The agenda no, is just determined entirely by rich people, and they get access that no one else has. So, democracy. <laughs> Essentially, yes. That is, that's what the court says. That that the added access and influence is just democracy in action, and not even not even it doesn't even entertain that that might be that might appear corrupt, which is staggering. Okay, so so fun fact here, we'll drop in. Um, as of January of this year, according to the Pew Research Center, 70% of Americans say the, eco- the economic system favors the wealthy, and 80% say the wealthy have too much influence in politics. So there is a little bit of perceived corruption, I guess I would say. A little bit of perceived corruption. Right. But the court, the court would not allow for that. It doesn't, it doesn't even acknowledge it. I mean, today, you have to remember, Buckley is still good law. So... Uh, in order to arrive at its conclusion, the court must had to first determine whether spending qualified as pure speech or expressive conduct. Now, it might sound obvious, it might seem obvious that spending is an act, um, but you do have to remember that uh, in Tinker versus, versus Des Moines, the court had said that students wearing armbands to protest the, uh, the war, that that was pure speech, that was not expressive conduct. Um, and uh, expressive conduct is, is subject to a lesser protection under the First Amendment than pure speech. So ultimately, the court finds that spending is pure speech. It, it does clarify that even if it were expression instead, FICA's spending limits on independent expenditures would not pass constitutional muster based on the test that it was est- that was established just a few years earlier in the United States versus O'Brien, which was a 1968 case involving the burning of draft cards. Uh, the, the O'Brien test is something something that you, you learn in law school, and it is it seems it'll seem pretty obvious once I once I say it. But you know, anyway, the government for a government regulation to stand, uh, it has to further a substantial government interest. That interest has to be unrelated to the suppression of the expression, and it must po- it must uh, be only an incidental burden on the First Amendment, no greater than essential to to further that interest. Uh, and if you fail any one of those, the regulation will fail. So the Buckley Court holds that limits on independent expenditures violate the second prong, that the government interest has to be unrelated to the suppression of the expression. The court writes, quote, Although the act does not focus on the ideas expressed by persons or groups subject to its regulations, 
it is aimed in part at equalizing the relative ability of all voters to affect electoral outcomes by placing a ceiling on expenditures for political expression by citizens and groups, end quote. So the court justifies uh, its ruling by making the assumption that, quote, virtually every means of communicating ideas in today's mass society requires the expenditure of money. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound accurate. In any way. But, it, but it's also not really, if this were a free market of ideas, you know, uh, which I, I find a silly expression, but, you know, if it were, then the best ideas would rise to the top, not the best funded ideas. Um, so the whole idea, right. and, and, but also just like, I, I think about this sometimes ever since Citizens United, which we're going to talk about in a second, like the whole idea of having like more speech or less speech, like when you tie speech to money, when you commodify it, um, it, it kind of makes speech something that it's not like, you don't really have, like if you're in a debate with someone, like one person doesn't have like a more speech than the other person. Like it's not how it works, but when you commodify it, uh, you know, this is, this is kind of what happens. Um, and, I'll, and by the way, it's inherently undemocratic. The idea that, uh, you know, one person, one vote is what our elections are supposed to be. So, um, one person has this exact same amount of voting power as another. And then when you, when you make speech uh, into sort of this kind of monetary um, framework, then one person has a lot more speech than the other. And so therefore one vote, one person is not one vote. You know, one person like Charles Koch might be worth several hundred thousand votes. So, well, yeah. right. And, and look, it, it, it does seem, it, it does seem somewhat hypocritical, right? Like if you're telling us on the one hand that we need to have a free market for ideas because the best ideas will rise to the top and gain traction. But then you also say, well, those ideas really require a lot of money to, right. to, to gain traction. That's sort that is inherently contradictory. Um, and, and, and certainly it doesn't seem relevant today in the age of social media when you can put out something on Twitter and get and participate in the mass you can you can change the world on twitter you can affect the national political discourse mm -hmm. with a tweet i was gonna say as journalists i think we're all acutely aware of that like uh i mean we've all had viral viral moments well, on same twitter. with you know uh, instagram users i mean uh i think this is a perennial problem of 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 and maybe somewhat inevitable problem but uh that you know the, the law isn't really always up with the times like it doesn't change as fast as the times it has to react to the changes and so therefore you know we're stuck in this shit where um that the buckley decision has actually been built upon sense and is instead of the opposite which would have been better alex that's a great point and we're going to get to it but first a message from our sponsors are you a cranky white guy who gets just a little horny when new legislation is introduced? When you open up your web browser, is your homepage the Brookings Institution? When you walk into a room, do you know you're the smartest person there? Well, if so, I've got the news site for you. Box.com, where the wonks hang out. So the Buckley ruling doesn't withstand the scrutiny. Um, of the court and the court realizes the error of its ways within a few years and reverses course. Just kidding. Uh, instead over the years, the precedent is expanded. Um, uh, so eventually to include corporate speakers as well. And that's what citizens United, the 2010 ruling was. So that year the court held that corporations have the same speech rights as people, uh, when it comes to making indirect, uh, political expenditures. Um, so that's again, uh, non-coordinated expenditures. Um, so not only is money speech, but corporations are people now. So, um, yeah, this all makes a whole lot of, a lot of sense. 
uh, America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about this. Like, they're saying that, um, you know, a corporation, a giant, you know, investor-driven uh, public company is an actual person. And that public company can use its vast corporate treasuries to speak in the same way that you and I can speak. I mean, it doesn't get more absurd than that. I mean, it seems fair, man, right? Like, I mean, I'm a person, Chevron's a person. Yeah. We're right. going to meet Chevron later for drinks. <laughs> so after Citizens United, uh, several months later, we got uh, to the D.C. Circuit decision, speechnow.org versus FEC, uh, which basically used Citizens United to give us super PACs, which can spend unlimited amounts of corporate money on elections. Uh, and today, elections are... Right, that was the first decision to apply Citizens United. Oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so, yeah. and it's continued like today, elections are more expensive than ever. And that's, that's a result directly of those two rulings in 2010. Um, and 2020 already the presidential race is, is breaking records. I mean, we had Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer combining to spend, um, 1.2 billion. Um, so, uh, Oh my God. Yeah. It, it's astronomical. Um, so, so clear the 2020 now we have election, the Bloomberg loophole. Well, that's a, yeah, yeah. Now we have the, yeah, the Bloomberg loophole that Sludge just did a report on how like Bloomberg can now donate the 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 remainder of his his president his failed presidential campaign to uh, the Democratic Party, which is like which which basically and I mean he already was powerful within the party, but that just ensures that he will be incredibly powerful within the party. I mean, it's eighteen million dollars that you're just getting for but, free. Like, what happens? To, what <laughs> happens to the next to the next self-aggrandizing, bloviating asshole billionaire who decides that hey, I'm going to start a like a dummy presidential campaign to give a billion dollars to the Republican Party, like what or, or to the Democratic Party? What happens then? Right. Like well, that, that is well, that, that's the end of democracy. I mean, that was that was the plan for. From day one for Bloomberg, right? Like he would make a run at it himself and meanwhile build this entire infrastructure up. And then if yes, it didn't and work, he would just donate it to the. Yeah, but it's worse than that because right. so he created this for uh, some kind of digital firm called Hawkfish. And he wants that to kind of become the Democratic Party's data firm, basically. And so by, you know, by giving the 18 million to the party, he's just basically like. Uh, increasing the chances that the party will adopt Hawkfish as its sort of digital infrastructure. Um, you know, so, I mean, it, it, nothing with this guy is without like an ulterior motive, you know? Well, also he did this to stop. It's, it's worth pointing out that he, he got involved in the race when it appeared that the democratic party was at risk of becoming the party of Bernie Sanders. Or Warren, and so yeah. now, or, or Warren, but now he's like, he's in this race, he, he got in the race, and now he's giving all this money to ensure that the party remains loyal to, to moneyed interests like, like, well, Bloomberg. Like himself. So, um. Yeah, so Bloomberg, go fuck yourself. Yeah, I second that motion. A 2014 study out of Princeton, uh, found that opinions of the wealthy determine policy outcomes more than those of everyone else, um, which you know, should seem would be kind of the obvious result of, of, of our campaign finance system. Uh, and you can see this play out today. I mean, look at Medicare for all, like it's a very popular policy. Um, it gets very little traction in Washington, uh, despite that popularity. Um, so the year that Buckley was decided, uh, just 5% of congressional reps and senators, uh, went on to become lobbyists. Uh, in 2016, uh, the revolving door 
had opened widely uh, with about one third of reps and about half of senators, literally half of U.S. senators going on to lobby, usually for corporations after their uh, political career. Right. That is a staggering number. And, and, and so the fact that politicians are increasingly angling for jobs that they're going to go into after their tenure in industries that they're meant to be regulating uh, while they're politicians must affect policy, right? Um, yeah, it and it's to. not even just the electeds; it's it's their, all their staffers too. Um, so you'd think that would have this, some this impact. political influence is is currency and uh, a job ticket in a way. Yeah, and the the staffer point is really key because you know first of all, congressional staffers are are often quite underpaid. Um, they're they're not really paid a lot, and they can work for a handful of years and basically get the credibility that a lobbying shop or a corporation would want, you know, they have enough influence, they have enough connections that they can be a lobbyist. So they often, they often go take that and then they go back and they lobby, um, you know, the same people they are working with as a congressional aide. Um, so it's this kind of like, um, self-perpetuating cycle. Uh, and it actually benefits, <laughs> it benefits the system for, you know, these, these aides to be paid very little and, and thus have the motivation to leave and to go, uh, go lobby for the corporations. That that's so it's so sick. It's a it's a sick system. I mean, it, yeah, it's like, it's really insidious. This is I mean, this is this, this we this is what we created. This is what we've done to ourselves. Well, in 2013, there was a memo that was circulated among Democratic members of Congress. It was leaked, and it recommended that everyone spend four hours a day on telephone fundraising. So that's like half a workday that you're supposed to spend calling rich donors up, asking them what they're interested in policy-wise, and asking for money. Um, so the more the wealthy spend on elections, the more it costs to run for office. And the more that it costs to run for office, the more necessary wealthy funders become, um, and, and the more pull they have. Jesus Christ. It's a cycle. It's a, as, you know, it's, it's a vicious cycle. The Gilded Boys were able to get a hold of Ro Khanna, a progressive Democratic U.S. representative from California. We talked with Khanna about what it's like to actually be a member of Congress in this current system. Here's that interview. We really wanted to ask you uh, some questions about your experiences as a congressman. Um, the first being uh, unresponsiveness. There's, this, there's widespread perception that Congress is unresponsive uh, to the demands and, and needs of, of the people, um, like not moving forward on policies that, that ostensibly boast support from a majority of Americans, like Medicare for all. Um, so how much of that would you attribute to ideology and how much of it would you attribute to the influence of money? Well, that's a very difficult question. I I think it's both. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you have the influence of money, which I think shapes public perception. So when you have uh, massive uh, funding by uh, pharmaceutical groups, by insurance groups in states attacking Medicare for all, uh, that makes people cautious, politicians cautious uh, to take those positions. Uh, and when you have large donor classes uh, offering a perspective that uh, Medicare for all is anti-business, anti-growth, uh, then that becomes an echo chamber that uh, influences uh, political thinking because politicians are spending so much time uh, talking to those individuals. So I don't think it's quid pro quo. I don't think people say, oh, I'm going to get lose X amount of money uh, if I 
uh, don't take that position. I think it's more subtle than that, uh, but I think it gives people a larger uh, uh, influence. But there is also an ideological component uh, where uh, the right has done a, uh, a very effective job, unfortunately, of painting anything as, as government run as incompetent, and they have done that with the, in the healthcare debate, which we have to overcome. So, uh, Congressman, it's been pointed out that uh, congressional representatives, senators, and their staff often often end up regulating the uh, who, who often end up moving into the industries that they that they oversee during their tenure in office. Um, as a sitting congressman, uh, do you, what what factors do you see that contribute to this revolving door? Well, I've said there should be a lifetime ban on members of Congress becoming lobbyists or going and working in any way. Uh, for uh, anything that can be construed as uh, advocacy influencing policy. Uh, personally, I will never do it. Uh, I find it uh, uh, very sad that people uh, who could do a lot of other things out of, after being members of Congress, there's not like you're limited in your options, uh, go choose to make a million dollars a year uh, at a K Street shop. Uh, and I, I, I think that that is part of the swamp uh, that uh, Pelosi originally tried to to drain or Trump tried to drain, but it's as big as ever. Uh, and we need to uh, have laws both for staffers and for uh, members of Congress that they should not be able to uh, uh, lobby on uh, places where they legislated. Do you find that um, possibly some colleagues of yours and, and certainly staffers um, might be doing their jobs in a way that would sort of allow them to go into these industries and represent them uh, after, after they're in, in office? That's a great point. I mean, I don't have hard data on it, but I can't, I, I'm sure it uh, colors at least uh, con if not consciously, subconsciously, what, what people think, that they don't want to rock the boat. They, uh, either they're concerned about appointments into a future political office and into an administration and, and want, don't want a massive opposition, uh, or they're concerned about uh, uh, opportunities in the private sector. And they look at what happened to Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, frankly, where uh, all these billionaires, all of the moneyed interests came and attacked them and called them unelectable. Uh, and you realize that taking certain positions that are populist and popular uh, are going to earn you the ire of some very, very powerful interest groups. And the easier course of action, the less resistant course of action uh, is not to be on the extremes and uh, challenging entrenched power. So do you think that... Um Possibly increasing pay, especially for staffers, would prevent the incentive of just using the job as, you know, someone who's well-intentioned ends up using the job as a springboard to a more lucrative um, position where their influence yeah. is a credential. And is that I just feasible? Congressional staff is uh, very underpaid. I think these are people who are often working uh, 70, 80 hours a week. They're uh, exceptionally dedicated. They're engaged when they come genuinely for public service. Uh, it's a great honor to be able to work in the Hill. I mean, only five, 6,000 people get to do it in a country of 330 million. But I think paying them better uh, would go a, a ways in uh, reducing the uh, incentive to go and cash out after your tenure on the Hill. Thank you. Um, so just to, just to pivot a little bit. Um, there was a memo that was leaked a few years ago uh, from Democratic congressional for Demo meant for Democratic congressional reps that recommended like something like four hours a day uh, for fundraising. Um, as somebody who is in Congress, I mean, what is that? What is the uh, that number up to today? Because 
the cost of elections has obviously increased since then um, with no signs of slowing down. Well, I think four hours is probably right if you're in a competitive district. I mean, my district is a safe democratic district. So uh, a lot of the fundraising I do is just to invest in a digital program to expand my digital footprint. So for me, uh, I don't have that same demand. And uh, I probably spend, you know, 10 hours a week fundraising. Uh, But I'd say more typically uh, for uh, an average member of Congress in a competitive district, uh, yeah, they spend three, four hours of call time every day. What influence? What what impact do you think that has on 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 policy, if any? It it, it just means that people are less engaged in being creative uh, thinkers on legislation and showing up and being active participants on committee hearings. It leads to a diversion of uh, uh, people's time and attention. Uh, it shifts, I think, the way you perceive issues because you're surrounded. So if you talk to anybody for four hours a day or any class of people for four hours a day, you're bound to be influenced by their perspective. And so if you're talking repeatedly to people who are uh, in the top one or two percent, you're probably going to think, well, we need to be more moderate. We need to work across the aisle. We need to uh, uh, be more pro-business. I mean, these are the, the sentiments that that you hear. And uh, you often hear from that group of people, oh, the country should, why can't we just have fiscally conservative, socially liberal people? So I don't believe that that's uh, because uh, they're trying to, 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 to buy access. I actually think that's how they view the world, but they have a disproportionate influence in getting members of Congress to view the world that way. Uh, whereas if you were to speak to working class people and ordinary people more often, you would have an agenda that looked a lot more like the Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. And do you think that publicly fi- financed uh, congressional elections would would be a, a major improvement in that regard? Well, what I have supported, which I think would be constitutional, because right now under Buckley versus Vallejo, which I disagree with, money is speech. So you can't stop a Michael Bloomberg for spending his own money. Even if you got rid of Citizens United, you're going to have a multimillionaire spend his own money. And one of the things that would be constitutional until, under Buckley versus Vallejo is uh, democracy dollars. In other words, we currently spend about $6 billion a year on federal elections. That may seem like a lot, but it's actually not that much when you consider that uh, Coke and Pepsi are spending probably a billion dollars on figuring out what soda to buy. The problem isn't the amount of money. The problem is uh, who is spending that money. And that money is spent largely by the top 1% or 5%. Uh, what democracy dollars would do is it would overwhelm the private money. Imagine if you gave everyone $100 uh, and they could spend it, and you had twelve billion or fifteen billion of public financed money uh, dwarfing the private money, and people had to make a choice about whether they would take the democracy dollars, the public money, or the private money. I think a scheme like that and a plan like that, which uh, Bruce Ackerman, Russ Feingold, and I have proposed, uh, and Andrew Yang actually ran with in, in his campaign, uh, would be constitutional and make a big difference. Um, so to put it plainly, I guess you could say that America's campaign finance system is broken. And we owe it all to a, a Supreme Court decision in 1976 and a, uh, a, a cultural shift that occurred uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so there it is, right? That's why, that's why we have this system today where working people wait on hold for weeks only to be put through to a message box um, while you have Richard Branson taking the former president uh, wakeboarding, <laughs> right? 
Uh, it's why Congress is completely unresponsive to the electorate. Uh, it's, it's why in order to be heard, um, people have to riot um, and disrupt entire cities. Um, and it's why, you know, voter turnout hasn't reached 70% in a general election in over a century. Um, and, and it hasn't hit above 60% in a midterm, you know, since before that. Uh, there's this great sense today um, that, that the government has just completely failed the people. Um, and, it's, and it's because they have. You'll notice that even in the talks of uh, reform, we always talk about, oh, we want to you know, fix Citizens United. We want to fix Citizens United. Uh, but there isn't really much talk of Buckley because it would be unheard of to support any kind of reform that would check the influence of wealthy individuals like maybe companies maybe companies shouldn't be allowed to donate unlimited or spend unlimited sums of money uh, on politics not donate um but yeah maybe maybe like chevron shouldn't be able to spend as much money as it wants in politics but uh chevron ceo they sh- they, they should uh sheldon adelson he should yeah, make they, the wealthy in this country should be able to. But you know, donors can now donate hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in one go to like obviously you know there's the there's the fifty four hundred dollars to Biden's campaign for the primary uh, excuse me fifty six hundred for the primary in general but but it goes to the party to all the state parties to like party building funds and like it's just it goes on and on and so you can basically drop almost a million. Um, just right. uh, just in and, one and the go. McCutcheon decision removed the McCutcheon decision said that you could donate uh, the the maximum to uh, multiple candidates and parties. So well, to however you want. Yeah, there's no spending. yeah, there's no limit to your overall like I guess cycle election cycle limit, right? Um, but you know, part of this this conversation that we haven't talked about yet, which I I, I want to make sure we mention is that it's not just that the wealthy donors themselves have a lot of influence. It's that a lot of the members of Congress are actually part of that same wealthy class. Um, look at the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Um, she and her husband are worth an estimated $100 million. That places her, I think, in the top five or six uh, wealthiest members of the House. And she's the leader, of course. Um, so these people are the same socioeconomic class as a lot of the mega donors that they're uh, soliciting money from. They're probably hanging out with at times. Um, so it, it's not just that the wealthy donors' interests are uh, most important to the politicians whom they fund, but it's actually a lot of these politicians are members of the same class and probably have the same economic interests, which you know, of course, uh, are against uh, you know sharing the wealth and expanding. Uh, unemployment and uh, expanding, uh, you know, Medicare for everyone and things like that. Well, also it makes, it makes a whole lot of sense why Pelosi was fighting to uh, lift the, the, the salt cap uh, for charitable deductions in the, in the latest, uh, in the latest um, stimulus package, the, the, the heroes act, which mm-hmm. is named for America's essential workers, despite containing uh, potential cuts to, to pensions for essential workers. No, and didn't, um, didn't yeah, she, didn't she have an issue with, she had an issue with the extra 600 bucks per week that the unemployment program was giving out. Like I remember, like I couldn't right. believe, well, I couldn't believe, I mean, I should have, I should not have been this naive, but I actually was like, wait, this is not a Republican saying this. This is like Nancy Pelosi saying an extra 600 bucks a week for people who are unemployed, who have just lost their jobs because of a pandemic on uh, unprecedented, you know, in the last hundred years, uh, 
and she had an issue with that. I mean, that that's incredible. And that look, look I mean, she well, again, sa- you have to remember, like these are these are the same people who saw they saw McGovern lose in '72. They saw um, they saw they saw Reagan trounce trounce the Democrats again in the eighty in in eighty and eighty four. Uh, I mean, they 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 came up at a time when when um, politics was changing. Politics was changing, and for the worse. I mean, the wealthy were becoming were were going to become more influential. They were getting they were getting more influence because of because of Buckley. But also, uh, the the Democrats, everybody was retreating from FDR because it, because Keynes apparently didn't have the Keynesian economics didn't have the uh, the answers for for stagflation. But so, you know, and that so drives that's me the generation nuts. of leaders. Like it drives me nuts that nineteen a trauma from nineteen seventy two basically some of these really like quite old Democrats who have literally lived through that. I mean Nancy Pelosi is about eighty years old. Um, you know, basically convinced her and many others that a progressive could never be president, uh, a real progressive, a leftist, you know. Um, and so even today, 50 years later, I mean, they, they think the same rules from the early 70s apply to the present day. Um, and I think that's a lot of and that, that's just an argument for like, just getting rid of the old people in the party. and, and or, or at least the 80s, at least the 80s, right? Like, because because Nixon, Nixon sort of ran as a law and order candidate. So like, that's 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 i mean reagan had that in his in his platform too but like reagan was really the small government guy and that was that was 80 yeah yeah but i'm saying i'm saying the 70 and then 84 against mondale yeah but i'm saying the 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 1972 loss by george mcgovern a, a quite progressive candidate was was this kind of traumatic moment for Democrats. And they, I think they just kind of decided that, um, nope, like that's not going to work. We have to tack towards the middle. You know, that's when, that's when kind of the predecessor to the new Democrats started. Um, and you know, with, with something that, uh, Bill Clinton would popularize, uh, 20 years later. So, um, I, that really, I mean, I, I think 72 was a really pivotal moment for the democratic party shifting to become a corporate party as the Republicans were. Um, and it's just, you know, it's basically gotten worse since then. Before we leave, I want to just just take one moment to talk about possible solutions because we're talking about you know all the reasons why we're fucked. But it is important that we have something in here that's a little more positive. Um, one thing that we could do is we could pass a constitutional amendment that would overturn Buckley and Citizens United. Uh, but you really have to you have to decouple. Um, space the idea that you have to change you have to change the idea that spending is a form of speech spending is not speech spending is expression um at the at the very best symbolic expression uh symbolic conduct congress should be allowed to impose spending limits on independent expenditures and uh direct donations um now there has been some talk that Maybe that 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 spending limits uh, for independent expenditures could come down hard on media, and if that's the case, then carve out extra protections for media. I mean, right now, uh, that would be a good time. The Supreme Court could do that in 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 two seconds. We really do have to replace to change um, to change the court and, or pass a constitutional amendment. I guess those are the only ways that we fix that we fix this. That's it. Here, here. Those are the solutions. Change the court. Pack the court. Or pass an amendment. Well, how about both? Well, yeah, why not both? So anyway, that's our show. We want to thank you all for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Gilded Age. 